Welcome to Ed Talks, an audio podcast presented by Achieve Minneapolis and the Citizens League in partnership with Indigo Education and Pollen. Ed Talks is a lively series of community conversations about public education and related issues that impact our young people. Each Ed Talks features two compelling short presentations by cutting edge educators, youth advocates, students, artists, or community leaders. Ed Talks is supported by generous grants from the Bush Foundation and the Vern C. Johnson Family Foundation. This Ed Talks focuses on understanding adverse childhood experiences, building self-healing communities. Our speaker is Mark Sander, Director of Mental Health for Hennepin County and Minneapolis Public Schools and a Senior Clinical Psychologist for Hennepin County. This event was recorded before a live audience at Ice House in Minneapolis on December 5th, 2016. All right, so this is the first time for me to do a talk like this, so please bear with me. It's going to be a little bit interesting, but hopefully uh, a lot of fun and and informational. So I'm going to try and work a clicker and move some paper slides around, so uh, let's see how we go. All right, so first of all, I want to thank um, Ace Interface, uh, which is a company, nonprofit that was started by Rob Anda and Laura Porter. And I was trained in this curriculum over three years ago. And so some of the slides you'll see tonight are from that curriculum. All right, and this is my reminder to relax, right? I do a lot of public speaking, uh, not like this usually though, but uh, a lot of public speaking. and. You know, it gets a little anxiety producing. So this is just a reminder for me to relax and have fun. So my focus today is really gonna be on having a conversation about changing adult behavior so that we can be more effectively understanding and supportive of our students. And also I really wanna help create a culture and understanding, a culture of understanding and compassion. Now I'm gonna catch up. All right, so. How many people have heard about the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study? Get your hands up. All right. How many of you think you could explain the key findings to a friend? All right, so at the end of this talk, I'm gonna tell you where to get more information about the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, both here in Minnesota and at the CDC. Uh, But kind of the headlines of the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study that was conducted back in 1997 with over 17,000 individuals that were part of the Kaiser Permanente Managed Care uh, Consortium was that early adversity has lifelong effects, both on our physical, psychological, and behavioral health, right? And so one of the key findings in the study was of the 10 adversities they looked at, only 33% of this population had an A score of zero. What does that mean? It means that 67% had an A score of one or more. One of the key messages of my talk today is that adversity is common, right? It's not like we thought about PTSD before where it's just 5% of the population. Adversity is common and it has impacts on our brains, our physiology, and our social perceptions. All right, so to kind of get into this a little bit more is to talk about our human central nervous system. Now, I'll admit, before I started doing these talks, I hadn't looked at a slide like this since graduate school. And I kind of forgot about how amazing our central nervous system is. With our brain, 
right? Our spinal cord and the millions of nerves running through our body. It's on 24-7, seven days a week, 30, 365 days a year, whether we're asleep or awake. And it has one primary function. That is to help us adapt to stay alive. It helps us adapt to stay alive. And that's a really key message to understanding behavior. All right, so bear with me. This is an old slide from Ace Interface. But it really does serve kind of my purpose tonight about kind of helping us understand uh, how we adapt, right? So at the top there, we're going to simplify things down into really two main experiences, okay? The top here, up here, is really, it's a roller coaster, okay? So think about this. You're seven years old, you're on a roller coaster, and you're blindfolded and you never know when you're gonna get off, right? You're going up, down, side to side, right? You're going up that click, 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 and you're waiting for that drop, right? And after going round and round the roller coaster for a couple times, your body and brain start seeking out input so you can figure out what's coming next because that's the only way you feel any sense of control, right? I've gotta protect what's coming next. And for individuals who's experienced the roller coaster more often than the playground, there's some effects on our brains. The emotional processing region of the brain is smaller um, and less efficient. There's an abundance of stress-related chemicals in our brain, such as cortisol, which really can eat at the neural connections and our synaptic connections, right? There's an overproduction of dysregulating hormones, there's less calming receptors in the brain, and there's less white matter in the brain, which is where all of our neural connections are and where we do our thinking. So the impact of that is individuals who are more competitive, um, hypervigilant, competitive, and they also might be withdrawn and dissociated or numb. Okay? So that's the experience of the roller coaster. Now let's think about the playground, all right? So the playground, imagine this. You're two, two and a half, you're going to the park with your caregiver, and they're like, hey, let's try out this slide today, right? And so you're like, okay. You walk over, you're going up, you're like, wow, this is getting really high. You're getting nervous, maybe you're getting a little scared. You get to the top of the slide, you start crying, right? You come down that slide, and who grabs you? Right? Your caregiver does, right? They pick you up and they rock you back and forth, right? And they're talking, you're saying, hey, it's okay, right? Or was, they start trying to distract you, wasn't that fun, right? Right, and they slowly start kind of slowing down, right? The rock, right? What are they doing? They're helping your body calm down physically and they're helping you feel safe emotionally, right? And so once they got you calmed down, they put you down and they say, hey, go ahead and play. And some of you will run back to the slide like, that was awesome. And some of you are like, forget the slide, I'm hitting the swings, right? And so we know for individuals who experience the, the playground world more often, that there's also some ramifications. The emotional processing regions of the brain are more robust and efficient. 
there's an abundance of a very technical term called happy hormones. No, I'm just kidding. Right, I don't know why they put that on the slide, but right, it's about you know, kind of endorphins, right? <clears throat> the, uh, there's a higher density of white matter, especially around the midbrain, which is where our limbic system is, so we can do a better job of processing our emotions. So the result of this is individuals who are more laid back, who are more relationship-oriented, who are more reflective, and are about process over power. Okay, does that make sense? All right, so quick quiz, right? We're doing an educational talk, so there's always gotta be a pop quiz, right? So who thinks the roller coaster world is more adaptive? Get your hands up, who thinks? Who thinks the playground world is more adaptive? Right, I see some hesitation. Who is still awake enough at 6.15 to realize it's a trick question, right? Because what did I say to lead off? I said, our brains, right, our central nervous system helps us adapt to stay alive, right? We adapt to the roller coaster world if that's our experience. We adapt to the playground world if that's our experience, right? So we adapt to our environment and what we experience gets wired into our biology, in our physiology, in our brains, okay? What we repeatedly experience gets wired in. So whether it's the playground world or the roller coaster world, we adapt. So what's the problem? The problem is only one of these set of adaptations really fits well with school, right? Oftentimes, the adaptations for the roller coaster world aren't a really good fit for the social expectations of school. All right, so I'm going to run through some foundational beliefs because usually this talk is about 90 minutes long, and they asked me to do it in 20. <laughs> um, so, our central nervous systems, right, its main job is to help us adapt to stay alive. And then constantly being on threat assessment, right? Constantly trying to read the environment. Is it safe or not? Right? It's very taxing on our bodies, right? It makes, can alter our physiology and our perceptions, right? So there's a researcher out of Canada named Bruce Perry. And he actually has done some research on um, play, students kind of exposed to the playground world or exposed to the roller coaster world. Right, and what he found was the playground children, their resting heart rate was about 70 beats per minute. What do you think the resting heart rate was for the kids experiencing the roller coaster world more often? 90, 100, sometimes even 120. Their resting heart rate. So when teachers say to me, he went from zero to 60 like that, I wanna say to them, you know what? I don't think he was at zero. Right? He was probably at about 45 sitting in that chair, and you just didn't notice it, nor did he or she. So I think this is another reason why during this time of talking about trauma and adversity, we're also talking a lot about mindfulness, yoga, breathing, because all of those things and other things really can help us calm down our nervous system, calm down our physiology, right? What we repeatedly experience gets wired in, okay? And I'm gonna keep repeating that, right? And this is where the hope is for schools. 
Because I believe we can intentionally decide what we want the repeated experiences of students to be in our schools and in our classroom. And as a school, if we collectively get together and map out what are these repeated experiences that we want all of our students to have, right, and give them to them day after day, all day, right, we can get them adaptively wired for school. So what if misbehavior right, occurs when the, successful, the survival adaptations clash with social expectations? Right? Another way of thinking of this is thinking about behavior, or more specifically, misbehavior, may not be a choice, but rather it's a normal biological adaptation to toxic stress and adversity. So if this behavior isn't a choice, then what do we need to do as adults? Right, I'm a clinical psychologist. I've learned behaviorism. If people make a choice, right, there's consequences, positive or negative. But if it's not a choice, then what do we need to do, right? Can we have the kinds of punitive consequences that we sometimes see happening when something might not be a choice. Ross Green, who is a, also a child psychologist, talks about all kids do as well as they can. And when they can't, we need to look at it as they're lagging some skills, right? There's lagging skills. What if we take on this idea of lagging skills rather than seeing this behavior as defiance, right? kind of willfully disobeying what we wanted them to do. Another thing to really remember um, is this quote from Helping Traumatized Children Learn. It's this idea that sometimes the most demanding behavior comes from a place of vulnerability. A teacher says, you know what, I wasn't really on my game, I had a really hard night the night before, and man, Tommy totally took advantage of it. Right, he pushed the limits, he was acting out all over the place. And I say, okay, that's one way to think of it. Another way to think of it is, Tommy's really good at reading the room, he's really good at reading you. And you know what, when you're off your game, that creates anxiety for him, right? That's something different than the normal routine. That makes him scared. And then his central nervous system gets all fired up, ready to fight or flee, and then you see some of these survival adaptations from the roller coaster world coming out. And then lastly, I think we really need to think about switching from what's wrong with you to what happened to you as a way of really digging in on what's going on. So I'm gonna go through this quickly because I'm a little behind time here, but really, so what do we do then? What can we do? So here's just a simple outline of like, how do we kind of start developing more trauma-informed schools? First, it starts with awareness building, right? Getting out the information about the neuroscience and ACEs and the impact. And then we need to start having conversations in schools about developing trauma-informed beliefs collectively. What are the assumptions and attitudes to make more trauma-informed practice? We need to have ongoing professional development, both in groups and individuals to be f reflecting and discussing 
what we're trying to do because changing adult behavior is hard, even when we want to. We need to have alignment of current policies and practices and programs to support trauma-sensitive environments, both at the school level and at the district level and at the state level. We need to have safe environments for school staff to practice trauma-informed practices and get the support and coaching that they need without fear of it affecting their performance reviews. And we also need to have the availability and the encouragement of self-care, which Rebecca's gonna talk about later. All right, so six elements to developing trauma-sensitive schools. Adults must adaptively change behaviors, assumptions, and beliefs. I also believe that we have much of what we need to develop trauma-sensitive schools already. We've got a wonderful, large repertoire of evidence-based social-emotional learning curriculum, practices, and interventions that we just need to use and know why we're using them and using them with intentionality. All school staff need to be involved in the professional development reflection. Sure, these, I can make these available to folks when it's over. All right, school leaders must create environments, right, where it's safe for adults to share and reflect. Maybe you've noticing here, I'm trying to have that repeated messages theme come out right. Yes, I am repeating myself. Um, we need to focus on student engagement with our positive school-wide engagement plans and linking them with our positive school-wide engagement activities in the classroom. We also need to have high quality, relevant instruction to engage students, which is essential for learning. And a lot of people ask, so what do, how do we build resilience? It's through our relationships with our students. Relationships can really trump the impact of ACEs. So classrooms, schools, educators can help promote and strengthen resiliency by ensuring that schools are nurturing, stable, and engaging. Hopefully the educators in the room have heard this in their school climate and other conversations. All right, I got the two minute warning so I'm gonna pick up my pace a little bit here. All right, so I wanna talk about CASEL, the Collaborative for Academic, Social, Emotional Learning. I really think this could be a framework for how we think about students' lagging skills. These right here are the five core competencies. Right, we've got self-awareness, responsible decision-making, <laughs> relationship skills, social awareness, and self-management, right? If you've got struggles in your classroom, if you've got behavioral concerns in your classroom, what if we look to this and say, is there a group of students that are missing, have lagging skills in self-awareness? Or maybe you've got an individual student who is struggling and has some lagging skills with responsible decision making. Then we dig down within these core areas and develop interventions and systems to support students learning these lagging skills. This slide is from the Compassionate Schools monograph, The Heart of Teaching and Learning. And it really talks about their six core principles. This idea of always empower, never disempower students. Right? Provide them with unconditional positive regard. For many of the students that experience the roller coaster world, they don't hear, I don't like the choice you made, but I still like you. 
They don't hear, I don't like that behavior, but we're still good, right? They don't hear that. They don't have that enduring, positive, unconditional regard. We need to maintain high expectations for students. Please do not tell, hear me saying that we need to lower expectations for students out of the face adversity. Absolutely not. But it's our job as professionals and adults to support them even more. We need to check our assumptions, observe, and ask curious questions. We need to be a relationship coach because a number of these students right, have not had enduring relationships. They don't know that we can have a fight, we can have a struggle, and we can be okay tomorrow. Or maybe it'll take a couple days, but it'll be okay. That ambiguity creates stress for them, and so then they wanna take right action and just be done with it. And then lastly, and I think this one's really great, provide guided opportunities for helpful participation, right? I believe that almost all of our students wake up in the morning wanting to learn and be successful. Unfortunately, for some of them, their repeated experience is failure at school. And so after about two seconds, after they wake up, they remember, I fail at school, and then they don't wanna go, they're unmotivated, they make up excuses about why school doesn't work for them. All right, so what can we do? Hopefully I've motivated you to look into adverse childhood experiences and all the new brain science that we've been learning about and the effect of adversity on our physiology, perceptions, and brains. You can get more information about the ACE study. You can Google ACEs CDC. You can Google ACEs MDH. Sorry, my dyslexia came out there. Um, you can Google the Minnesota Student Survey ACEs. They included uh, ACE-like questions in the 2013 Minnesota Student Survey. We can, uh, you can also go and get go to an ACEs presentation. Like I said, this is typically 90 minutes to two hours long. It goes in a lot more depth. You can get more information at Minnesota Caring, Minnesota's Communities Caring for Children. And if you wanna see what Minnesota and other states have been doing, again, you can go to Minnesota's Caring, uh, Communities Caring for Children and get more information there. You can go to the uh, Wisconsin Department of Public Instruction and see a whole list of resources about developing trauma-sensitive schools there and you can also go to ACE Interface. So I wanna close by just asking you, challenging you to shift your thinking from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. As I think it will open up space for understanding and compassion as we interact with each other and our students. Thank you very much. Ed Talks is presented by Achieve Minneapolis and the Citizens League in partnership with Indigo Education and Pollen. Thanks to our generous sponsors, the Bush Foundation and the Vern C. Johnson Family Foundation. For more information on Ed Talks or to watch Ed Talks videos, visit AchieveMPLS.org.